0: Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Today is October 20th. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're on the cusp between Libra and Scorpio. I'm sure you all knew that. And the first winter storm of the season is bearing down on the coast. So uh, break out your umbrella and your waterproof shoes because they say Monday. We're going to see some rain, and if you live in the tall mountains, you're going to get snowed on, so that's a good thing. But if you're driving, uh, please drive carefully, because when that rainwater hits the slippery summer of tire tread on the highways, the cars like that when you hit the brakes, so it takes about two or three rainstorms to wash that higher residue and oil away so we get some traction on the highways so now that i've totally alarmed you and put you in a state of terror uh, we will employ our anti-terror methods which is to say invoke the name of the buddhas and the bodhisattvas and resume serenity get back to peace of mind through chanting it's right there on the cover of your sutra text those are the names of the the Sutra that we're lecturing on and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who are the speakers of that text, so if you'd like to, if you're comfortable, please put your palms together and we'll we'll chant together.
1: <laughs> Namo
0: We've got a really full program tonight, so I'm going to jump right into our text and welcome, if you're joining us online from wherever you might be, um, please turn to page 70 and 71 in your text, 70 and 71. lots of empty available bowing benches up front if anybody is like courageous enough to move up don't be shy nobody is cool okay we're down on the the next to last paragraph the next to last stanza it's the Chinese is 从出发一 okay so if you're counting go to the bottom and take two lines as one line and go one two three four four from the bottom fourth double line from the bottom now this is the part of the text that's was chanted once upon a time it, it came with a melody a chant tone they call it so we're going to Duplicate that. And I'll give you a line uh, with a pitch to it and, and see if we can't find some harmony and harmony and unison in our chanting here. Okay,
1: here we go. <laughs> Chijenso abiku Excellent. Wow, that sounds really good. Go over to the right, page
0: 71. Um, let's read it together. We're on from his first resolution. Here we go. Together. From his first resolution up to Buddhahood, all of sufferings in that interval, in order to hear Dharma, he can undergo much the less all sufferings in the human realm. Now, Marty, Professor Berhoven, uh, stood in for me last week and already lectured on this stanza and the next one. so uh, those of you who had the blessings to to hear Marty explain this text, please uh, let that stand and and take from it what was what was most valuable um, in order to be consistent with our series here i 'm going to go over it again and just give. An, Turn the the crystal a little degree and we get a different light shining off the crystal. Like if you have a a diamond with a facet and the sun is shining from the east, a a blue light comes off to the west. And if you turn it a bit, the same light sends off a a magenta light, right? Like that. So we're going to hold this crystal up to the sun and get a different kind of light. Ah, well done. All right. Let's take a look at the Chinese. For those of you who this are your Mandarin is still in the learning stages, this will be a new experience. So, what do you find here? We have seven characters times four, and let's do it word for word, just for fun to get a sense of the, the syntax. You know, and this is this. Um, if this is your very very first experience with the Mahayana Buddhist Sutra, um, understand that first of all, these ideas have been in the world for two thousand five hundred years. This is a very old text. And if you think some of the biblical literature has mm, is newer than this. Now, there are other religious texts that have been in the world longer. We're not trying to say it's the oldest. But the fact remains, this is an old text. These ideas have been in the world, guiding people and giving them uh, a compass for their lives for a very long time. And it has been in this Chinese form for roughly uh, 1,800 of those 2,500 years, more or less. So these words on this, just like we're seeing them here, have um, been part of this text for a very long time. And scholars will tell you, true or not, we don't know, but scholars will tell you that the verses came first. And if this is your first experience, you should know that there's a prose part they're the paragraphs with grammar and, and uh, text. But there's also these verses, which are set in verse form. They meter. Bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, 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 bum. Seven times four. And thus they say that probably it was in this form first, and then later on expanded into text. One reason being that it's easier to remember when it meters. Poetry, songs stick in our in our mind's ear longer because it goes bump 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 bump. What else does that? Your heart. Right? And when we coordinate this meter with the heartbeat and then with the lungs, these verses have a place to land. They they go in. They're much easier to memorize. And for a very long time, the Buddha's teachings were not written down. The Buddha gave instructions not to write them down, because if you look at a population, especially back in the days when most folks were agrarian, most of us were farmers, right? We made our living from what we could grow. Um, During that time, who could afford to go to school? Well, the gentry, the rich folks, of which... The population might have been 2%, 3%. So, as soon as you write it down, it becomes the property of those folks because they have a book. If you're on the farm, who's got a book? So, the Buddha, the, the point of the Buddha's teaching at all was to help us understand why things break, essentially, pain and how to transform pain, how to make sense of our lives when things go wrong, which they do regularly. Now, not to say pessimistic. It's not that he's waiting for things to go wrong and glad when it happens. Not. But he was talking about the big things, things like getting old, things like getting sick, things like birth and death. And that was the Buddha's project. And so he said, I... I have a method. I've got something to say to that. And I want it to stay in the hands of people who need it, not make it the province of a class of clergy people, people who are often wearing tall hats, sitting in, in uh, spacious halls, and who you have to please in order to get them to talk to you or to get them to explain things. Not So, keep it out of the hands of the clergy. Keep it in the hands of the people who can use the Dharma. So, oral tradition. What I'm saying is the Dharma was oral tradition for a long time. My mouth, your ears. My heart, your heart. Oh, that makes sense. I like the way you said that. I trust you because the way you say it connects. That's the way the Dharma was taught for a very, very long time. And only later, when... 200 years after the Buddha's nirvana, people said, you know, we're going to forget it if we don't write it down. So they, they got together and wrote down what they remembered. And that was the result. Those hundred volumes there, mind you, there's more than just the Buddha's voice there. But this is one of those texts that came, it's collected in that collection called The Three Baskets, the Tripitaka. What you're looking at in front of you tonight is the Buddha's voice. And for the reasons I'm mentioning, Buddhism, interestingly enough, avoids a lot of the problems that uh, arise when scripture gets in the hands of one class or one group or one political party, which is you contest the authenticity of it. People say, you added that, you deleted that oh, let's see, I don't think Jesus said that, or that gospel came from the pen of someone who was actually opposed to the teachings of the historical, et cetera, et cetera. So in, not that we're looking at Christianity, most theistic religions have issues around authenticity of text. The magic word is apocryphal. Apocryphal means false, not true. the teacher didn't say it well very very few of these sutras get contested that way which is so interesting that you can pretty much date the words on that page you just chanted right back to the historical Buddha the prince who lived 2,500 years ago from a straight line from the Sanskrit now to the Chinese and now to English Ha, Ha we've got the Buddha's voice. Did you know the Buddha spoke English? Actually, if you actually heard him, he probably had a southern accent, probably talked like this, real slow, you know, kind of gentle, maybe Texas. I'm kidding. Would he speak like somebody from New York? Yeah, the Buddha said, All right, so it hurts? Yeah, well, there's a way to get over it. Don't get worried. Relax. Probably not. I think the Buddha would have a valley girl accent. No. I don't what, how would the Buddha speak? right? Probably like a news broadcaster, right? Middle American. I don't know. I don't know how the Buddha would speak. But um, in any case, we have the Buddha's printed voice right there in front of you. And so just to, this is all preamble. We haven't actually touched the text yet. But when I invited you to look at the Chinese language here, this is, uh, these are words that people have been doing what we did, putting it in the air through our voice, looking at it with our eyes, hearing it with our ears, for minimum 1,800 years. What else did you touch today that was close to 1,800 years old? Somebody says, you want to meet my old man? No, 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 I'm kidding. Not. um, What? Nothing. Not much. The planet? The planet is that old, right? What else? Not much, right? So one of the thrills for me... When I first understood what it was in front of me as I was reading Buddhist texts at age fifteen, when I first encountered them, I realized that this is a living it's a textual fossil, right? It's a a living record of wisdom on the planet kept alive by and large by people. Like these, the Sangha, whose job is to keep the texts moving, to keep them, you know, aerated, keep the moths off them, keep them in people's ears. So like the sutra being a kind of a living fossil, the Sangha, the Buddha's community, is the longest running fraternity on the planet. I think you can say that without much doubt of contradiction. Name another social grouping that has been intact and survives to this day. I f- f- flapped my robe at you, right? This is a robe very similar to the garment worn by the Buddha's own disciples, direct disciples. And the rules that we follow any given day, the customs, the hours, the style, the guidelines that we live by, both men and women can be traced directly back to the Buddhist Sangha. So, how interesting, you know. Come to the monastery on a Saturday night and you get a chance to touch history in a in a direct and living way, which is one of the reasons that, that one of the things that keeps me going, just day after day, morning after morning, is to realize that this is a tradition with legs. This is a tradition that, that chances are will survive. You know, given the test of time. It adapts, it uh, puts down roots, and puts up a hybrid. So, what's American Buddhism going to look like in 100 years? This is one chunk of it. English language, Buddhist text. The Buddha's voice in English. All right? So, enough preamble. Let's look now at the Chinese. Here we go. Ready? Word by word, take a look. Tong from, to initially the very beginning, the first fa to bring up, to send out, i idea, 智, all the way to the getting for that's the Buddha, that's the word of the Buddha. Okay, from first making idea all the way to attaining Buddhahood. You have to add the hood, or the state of. From the very first time, the idea arises all the way through to the actual attainment of the state of Buddhahood. Okay, See how terse the Chinese is? It's really, really economical language. From initial making resolve all the way to the attainment of Buddhahood... Comma. Okay, so that's one idea. Next line. 起见所有, Bi ku. It, between, all that exists. A, b, that's a Romanized word, that's a Sanskrit word, avici. The Chinese don't have a v sound, so they did a, b, ku. Pain, suffering, misery grief, from or let's see, it's between so the interval soyo, all obi, avici means without break no gap unintermittent pain so in that interval, all the endless pain okay, first line from initial resolve right up to the attainment of Buddhahood itself and in between all the endless pain parentheses that someone suffers that you can experience. Okay, so far so good. Two ideas strung together. Comma. All right, third line. Here we go. We, 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 one, fa, gu, jie, shou. Here we go. In order to hear Dharma, meaning teachings, because all able to endure. In order to hear the Dharma, because completely able to take on. Okay, we're building here we go from the initial resolve right up to the attainment of Buddhahood and all of that endless suffering in the interval between those two points in time in order to hear the Buddha Dharma he can take it all on okay line four here we go how much more so, human amid or human, human in all painful things. Again, how much the more human life all suffering experiences... How much the more is he able to endure all the, the things that hurt in, his, in a human life? In one lifetime. Period. Okay, we built it piece by piece, word by word. Take a look. From that very first resolution to become a Buddha or to get liberated up to the actual moment when he realizes Buddhahood, and all of the unintermittent suffering between those two events, those two experiences, he can take all of it on in order to hear the Dharma. How much the more is he able to endure the pain of a single lifetime? Okay, got it? Now, what you're looking at on the right-hand side is an early translation. We, um, what I mean is our Buddhist community, the Buddhist Text Translation Society, um, observed our teacher, the late Chan Master Shenhua, our founder, spend 90 minutes of every single day explaining this text, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, for a total of nine years. Master Shrenha gave nine years of his life to explaining this entire text. And mind you, this is is one chapter out of uh, something that has many chapters. This is a fraction of the entire text. We watched him teach by example that this is important. He really valued this text and he wanted us to understand it. So he put his life into it. And... We uh, translated it early on. This was first translated in 1982 or 86. And it's ready to be retranslated. So, this English translation is uh, ready to be improved. Here's what I would, I went through it a while, uh, before the lecture, and I would probably do it this way. Now, we've, we've looked at it word by word by word, right? And strung the, the ideas together. I would probably do it something like this. From his initial resolve up to Buddhahood and all the unending sufferings in that length of time, he can endure... Up, up, up One more time. Try again. Start over. From his initial resolve up to Buddhahood, And through the unintermittent, up, erase that, we would say delete, right? Highlight it and delete it. Here we go. From his initial resolve up to Buddhahood, delete that, start over. Here we go. Okay, got it. Ready? That's the problem here we go he can endure or she pronoun is gender nonspecific she let's do she she can endure all the endless misery from her first resolve up to Buddhahood in order to hear the Dharma how much more is this true for all the pain in the human realm want to hear it again She can endure all the endless misery from her first resolve up to the attainment of Buddhahood. How much more is this true for the pain she meets in the human realm? Okay, hang on to that thought. If you're hearing this for the very first time, you're meeting the sutra in midstream Notice that this chapter ends in one page. That's it. We're at the very, very, very end of this whole chapter. And I'll give you the quick summary. We're talking about a bodhisattva. This is an awakened being. Somebody who is unselfish. Somebody who lives to make life not only endurable, but meaningful for other people. Bodhisattvas are awakened beings. What they awaken to is that this is not the end of your life, your skin. They wake up to the connection between not just all humans, but all beings. So, because they see right through the surface, right through the skin, to what is the same inside us, not just with humans, but with all beings. So, for that reason, when you hurt, they hurt. When you're not hurting, they're at peace. When you're joyful, they share the joy, and they're connected. And it's not just a warm and fuzzy idea. It's actual seeing of the sameness. The Bodhisattva has been working hard to go beyond the limits of his or her ego. That's a, a word we've gotten used to using for the last century or so. The, the word in the sutra is self, and it's a constructed self. The Bodhisattva deconstructs the self, sees through the illusion that I'm a separate individual entity, a separate unit, and by doing that, it's not that nothing is left once you let go of the self. It's that everything is there. You see the connection, the identity and substance. The Chinese call it tong ti da bei, great compassion that comes from unity of substance. Same body, great compassion. Earth, air, fire, water, the hard parts, the warm parts, the empty parts, the liquid parts, identical in humans, Mosquitoes, whales, ancestors, children to come. So that's the outer parts. And then the inner parts, he identifies as being the same. And that gets really interesting because is it soul? Is it the great spirit? Is it consciousness? What name do you give to that thing inside? Well, different names. People who look inside identify there's something there, somebody there. The bodhisattva says, right, same. It's called the Buddha nature through this tradition. So having seen that identity, he says, yeah, well, our third stage bodhisattva says, you know, I see people really missing something essential. We grab onto things, take them as real, attach our emotions to them, and then when they go bad, It hurts. When things break up, when their essential nature is revealed, it hurts. Why? Because we love some and we hate some. And the things we love, when they break up, it hurts. Think mom and dad. Think grandkids. Think countries. Think possessions. Everything, says the Bodhisattva, that's made of conditions. Everything that comes together based on component parts will come apart sooner or later. Think body, think planet, think car, you know, clothes. Nothing fails to, to fall apart. Not an emotional nihilism, actual observation. You can see it. Some things fall apart quickly. Chrysanthemums, right? Wait three days, doesn't... Like that, right? Some things last a little longer. Bodies every 60, 70, 80, 90 years change and go, right? The planet, the ice caps, you know, with this, this has been the hottest September in history, last month. If NASA's projections are accurate... you ready? The polar ice caps will be gone in five years. The rate of evaporation and melting this year exceeded any other model of projection. And they say that given now they have to recalibrate because we lost so much of the Antarctica and the North Pole that given the new projections they've recalibrated, that the oceanfront property could be underwater by as much as three feet in five years because why the ice caps are going to melt. They're melting fast. Our friend Henry Kaiser, who is now in Antarctica tonight, um, used to take. He's a diver, and he works for the U.S. Uh, he works for Explore Arctic, the Geological Survey. I'm not sure who. He takes uh, research scientists out to McMurdo Sound and and out across the ice, and then dives for them. This is one of the things that Henry does. And before the base camp in Antarctica is here, let's say this is Antarctica. The base camp is here, and they have to get over to the best place to dive and where the penguins you all saw. Happy Feet and Penguin March, right? Over here. Well, they used to get on their ice buggies and go that way. Well, last year, they couldn't. For the first time, slush. They had to go around. And it took a very long time to get there around the roundabout way because now this is melting. First time. That's really scary when it's changing that fast. So, just to say impermanent. The Bodhisattva looks at things and goes, yeah, that's the nature of it. But people attach, people we care about attach to them. When things break, it hurts. Realization number one. Bodhisattva says, I have learned through my understanding of this that it doesn't do to attach to them. So he has learned to do this tightrope of caring but not attaching, of feeling with but not being confused of seeing things and delighting in them and not going around, you know, cynical and and dark, but at the same time understanding the nature of conditioned things. Now he wants to wake people up. Now she wants to get people to see what she sees. And so sets herself the project of waking other people up. Step two. What works? Bodhisattva says, the Dharma works. Because why? It's the Buddha's vision about the nature of reality. How things are kū, kong, wu chāng, wu wo. Things are unsatisfying. They are not Self, and they are transient called the three hallmarks of all conditioned things san fa yin in Chinese he wants people to wake up I got to learn the Dharma where am I going to learn the Dharma step four he identifies I'm going to go meet somebody anybody who can teach me the Dharma he said that's what happens in this chapter and so the Bodhisattva goes off on a quest for the Dharma and sure enough this is the one of the interesting literary aspects of this text whenever somebody makes a resolve i want to learn the dharma at any cost no matter what it takes in terms of energy or wealth to get to hear the dharma i'm going to learn it as soon as you have that resolve you get a test so we've just been through this part in the in the text where somebody says oh Oh, you want to learn the Dharma? Sure, no problem. Uh, Climb up this mountain and jump down into the pit of fire, and I'll be happy to give you the Dharma. It's a big test, right? And so the Bodhisattva goes, no problem. How high? I can do it. Climbs right up like an Olympic diver. Yahoo! Splash. Give me the Dharma, right? So first thing to say is, kids, don't try this at home. Do not go home and say, the Dharma master said the bodhisattvas really do this, so I'm going to jump off the third balcony. Not, right? This is, take it as literary metaphor. Now, if you're an avatamsaka bodhisattva, jump. And tell us when you get down to the bottom you know, what you learned, because we want to know. If you're not an avatamsaka-style bodhisattva, take it as a benchmark take it as the sutra's standard for what a bodhisattva is willing to let go of in order to hear the Dharma. That's where we are right now in the text, is looking at priorities. The bodhisattva's priority, number one, is helping people wake up. That's what she wants to do. She wants to wake us up so we see through her eyes the nature of things and don't be confused, don't get attached to them. That's that's the point of the text the other point is the bodhisattva's values say anything, any way to get that knowledge that's what I'll do I don't care what it costs I want that knowledge so that's, the, that's where we are so he can, she can endure all the endless misery from her first resolve up to Buddhahood how much the more is this true for all the pain in the human realm in order to hear the dharma she'll give up anything okay so that's, that's the gist of it right now and with that kind of commitment that kind of uh, renunciation that sense of values the Dharma opens up and the Bodhisattva gets it and then teaches it to others so that they wake up alright that's, that's the context that's where we are now sure enough the, um, the sutra gives us this extreme context, right? This extreme example. This would be the extreme sutra, like extreme sports, the ultra marathon of bodhisattva tests. But we don't have to go to that extreme to apply it to, to our world. Um, for, here's an example. Um, let's pin it right down. I make a practice not to talk about politics. You all know that, right? Tempted as I am, as tempting as it is to tell you where I am vis a vis political leadership, um, I have resisted. I have been good and have not betrayed how I voted. However, comma. Sometimes, when it's initiatives, I too want people to wake up. And uh, now, we may see a mass exodus of Bodhisattvas from the hall as soon as I start talking about. It. But here's my justification. Uh, it's tempting I'm uh, (laughs) (laughs) has anybody read measure 37 okay here's the way to do it I didn't say it you gonna tell him Oh, yeah, it's good for him. Oh, okay. You get really? Yeah. You want to do it? Oh, yeah. You know, your lips are moving. Come on. I, you said you were going to do that. All right. So, he's always teasing me about not being a ventriloquist. All right. So, okay. So, what's the story? Ah, oh, you're just a pussy. You say it. Oh, okay. All right. So, there you are. All right. <laughs> if I'm a pussy, what are you? Hmm? So, um, here's the thing. Um, the reason being... Now, here's what launched me into this. Here's a bodhisattva who says, my values are truth and ending suffering. And I want to do... I want to find a way to explain things to people so it hurts less. To maximize their well-being and to get rid of their suffering. It helps if you're hearing truth. Then you have a chance to make a choice. This bodhisattva will give up anything for the truth, his life, her life, her well-being, and will stop at nothing to uncover principles. Right now, there is something being perpetrated in this country, and it's pretty much uniquely in this country, that threatens the well-being of the entire world. No exaggeration. That's not exaggerated. If you look at it, what are the reasons? Well, convenience, maybe. Um you can imagine that there was somebody in a laboratory somewhere who thought, Hey, I wonder if we put this together, if maybe we could it'd be better, you know. Maybe. Well, my understanding of how the corporate world works is that marketing drives the R and D. What gets developed? What sells? What gets the green light? The most profitable. Not the best or the wise or the good or the beneficial. Certain companies, and they don't have to be named, but there's two that are really... I, I won't name Monsanto or DuPont. I, far be it for me to label them. But some marketing departments decided... That it would be good for their board of directors and the bottom line, for their profit margin, if they put poison deep into the what's called the germ line of their seeds, and then sell those seeds. Soybeans and corn. It's called genetically modified organisms, GMOs. And this company, with the help of the United States government, embarked on a program of buying up all the other available soybean and corn varieties of which America led the world. I mean, corn essentially came from Mexico. Some people say. America, corn, corn corn-fed, cornbread, right? We're just corn-fed Americans. And these companies, with the collusion and the duplicity of the Food and Drug Administration, the head of which was the lawyer for the very same company so that the government and the companies are identical, bought up all the other available varieties of seed and put them into a bank and said, oh, you would like to buy seed? Buy some of our seed. 88% of the soybeans available in America have animal genes spliced into them and Roundup, which is a very, very deadly toxic pesticide. And that's what's available. 90% of all the corn in America is called Roundup-ready corn. You can't buy anything else now because it's gone. They bought those heritage seeds. There are savvy, wise gardeners, largely led by Rodale, who has been a hero in gardening and agriculture for decades, and kept their heirloom seeds and didn't tell anybody, but the bulk, the huge mass of non-GMO seeds are under the ownership of a company. So, so what? Well, the idea is... They put Roundup, which is a chemical product manufactured by one company, right down into the germline, into the genomes, into the genetic identity makeup of the corn that they sell you. So what? So it's resistant to the poison because the poison is in the product, in the seed. Plant the seed, up comes the corn and soybeans, then they come and spray Roundup this very same hugely toxic stuff that'll kill you on the field, which kills all the other plants except the ones that have the Roundup already in them. So their seed belongs to the company, and the poison and pesticide belongs to the company. Herbicide belongs to the company. And then we take that poison Seed and eat it as corn. And we eat it as uh, hydrogenated corn oil, as corn syrup, as corn sweetener. Corn made by Monsanto, GMO corn, is in about half of the products in your kitchen right now. And the doctors who are keeping track of this now say we're Discovering diseases now that are not responding to traditional treatments. And we think that it's because we have been eating genetically modified corn and soybeans now for about two decades. They first introduced them in the 70s. So we've been doing it now for some 30 plus years. The scariest one of all infertility. Infertility. They're discovering that the laboratory animals that eat genetically modified organisms no longer reproduce, and their organs shrink and don't function. And now, what was the article yesterday? Young boys and girls are maturing more quickly because of the genetically modified RGB... The bovine growth hormone that is put into the soybeans that they feed the cows and the corn. And you go, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. So, for one company's profit, we are ending the human race. They're no longer fertile, right? Birth rates are dropping like crazy. That's one. Leaky gut syndrome is one. Colitis. This whole raft of digestive diseases that have to do with permeability of the stomach lining comes from the pesticides that are genetically modified into the plants. They're designed to kill bugs. Not the plants, but the bugs. It makes the insect's stomachs break. And they die. And now that same phenomenon is happening nationwide. Largely centered in the U.S. Why? Because 27 other countries say, you do not sell us that poisonous food. You haven't tested that. You don't know. You just invented it. You have not let that evolve over thousands and thousands of years like corn and soybeans do. Do not sell it to us. Okay? So what happened? As soon as the European Union said no more of that. As soon as Japan said, we do not buy your products, guess what? Monsanto okay, we'll take it out. They kept selling, they sold them non-GMO, but in this country, our only choice is genetically modified corn and soybeans. And other, And you go, why don't we know about this? How come they get away with this? It's because the Food and Drug Administration that is meant to regulate this are led by men and women who used to be in the employ of the same companies. They're the same people. And today, those officials are saying to us, oh, it's perfectly safe. Besides, we've done tests and it's, we haven't seen any problems, they say. Well, we're seeing the problems now. And it's very scary and it's also outrageous that for private profit an entire generation of human beings are eating products that are not necessarily safe at all furthermore you don't even know if you're eating them or not initiative 37 says what says you must label your product and tell us if it has GMO products in it. If you put that poisoned, pre-poisoned stuff in your cookies, in your bread mix, in your soda pop, tell us because we will not buy it. That's the measure. Prop 37 is the initiative to tell us that's why I spent I've never done this before, taken Sutra time to talk about it, but man, and in the very few days, we're going to get a chance to vote on that. And the Los Angeles Times does not endorse it. Chronicle hasn't released their right? Legal women voters, no opinion. Why? Money talks. Money talks. This is a citizen's initiative to tell us. That's all we're saying. Once they tell us, then we vote with our dollars. Then we vote by telling the food companies you put that stuff in your product, it's going to stay on the shelf. I'm not buying it. That's what Europe did. The companies very happily pulled it out, right? Because they don't have to tell us, it's legal to. Put this stuff in food and not tell us. We should make that illegal. Why? Your babies are eating it. Your grandchildren will be eating it. You know. So it's real scary. Now, why am I so hot on this? Um, I was just in L.A. with the uh, National Vegetarian Conference called VegSource.com Healthy Lifestyle Expo. I was the speaker... And so was he, I confess. And a man named Smith uh, is it Gene Smith? Was uh, Gave his, his presentation. He is a courageous uh, environmental journalist. He's got a book called Genetic Roulette and a DVD now. And his talk was so unsettling to all the doctors and nutritionists and athletes gathered at the VegSource Conference that uh, we had, like, Dr. McDougal, John McDougal, Dr. Uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, who is Bill Clinton, President Clinton's doctor. You know Bill Clinton looks so good. He weighs what he did in high school. Why? He's a pure vegan. And Caldwell Esselstyn was the one who turned... Bill Clinton around. All these doctors were there. Uh, John Robbins died for New America. And they were asked at our panel at the end, what do they think about uh, Mr. Smith's uh, genetic roulette? And they all said, three of them said, you know, we are doctors in the trenches. We're in the front lines of healing illness somebody breaks a limb we were there with the sutures and the the splints there are so many things we have to pay attention to we've been holding off on gmos why once we open it we're going to have to pay attention to it that'll have to be our new focus and life is short that's a world of pain And if I don't have to know about it, I can go on and heal illness. I don't have to get so political. Now that we know about it, we cannot ignore it. It's so huge that 88% of the soybeans in this country are already genetically modified. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Right? 90% of the corn in this country is genetically modified already. They didn't ask you. They just went ahead and sold it. And grabbed up all the other seeds, so there was nothing else. Tim, you're you're nodding. Uh, from a monster,
2: only one company really makes that uh, genetically modified uh, seeds, and we know Monsanto. Monsanto. They had no choice. And so the farmers had no choice to use, except to use Monsanto C. But now, in that uh, uh, proposition 37, the farmers sided with the government in Monsanto to encourage us to vote no on it. 37. Because they are afraid they cannot sell it. So uh, we know that we. No. so we can have a choice but the farmers now sided with the government
0: they'll go down
2: oh yeah They now they are they, on the government side because the profits nothing else so they are afraid not, to go, uh, not to be able to sell so they to they vote. no but uh, up to date I think they've been arguing they don't know the, uh, the poisonous effect of the new seeds but there's one thing one potential danger which is very possible because uh, when a disease or when insects attack a crop, normally they only attack, uh, attack one
0: variety. One
2: variety. Now, if we standardize all into one variety, right? And, and if that goes down, and to
0: goodbye crop, to soybeans. Then the goodbye to corn.
2: That's right. Yeah. All
0: That's really serious. So, Tam is is saying that two points. One is farmers are now siding with the government to say no on 37 because they're entirely using Monsanto products, both the seed and the insecticide, herbicide, pesticide. And if people say, no, we're not going to buy your GMO-labeled products after we pass 37, they're out of business, right? And then he said the, another huge issue is called biodiversity, which is nature has sustained crops because there are many varieties. If a bug shows up, let's say the glassy-winged sharpshooter, that's the name of a bug that attacks grape uh, wine grapes. The glassy-winged sharpshooter showed up and attacked, let's say it was Syrah Grapes. All right, they're gone. What do you do? You plant Zinfandel because the glassy-winged sharpshooter doesn't attack those. It usually attacks one kind, right? If there is only one variety of seed and the bug comes and gets it, no more soybeans, right? No more corn. That's dumb, stupid, right? It's so obvious. But for private profit, you forget principle, and they say jian, yi, You see benefit and you forget the principle. All right. Now, to back up Tam's first point, one of the stories told on this DVD called Genetic Roulette is a tragic, heartbreaking, horrifying truth about India. The Indian government promoted genetically modified Seeds as the answer to providing enough food for the world. Well, the planet makes enough food, but it's a question of distribution. In India, it's a different kind of scale for the farmers. Farmers in India have a system of sustainable crops and agriculture that has been there for Minimum six thousand eight thousand years you have some cows, and you grow enough food to keep the cows going until the rains come again and it's people get by and you survive well, genetically modified organisms were introduced into India, and one of the side effects of roundup, which we found out is the when you splice in those pesticide, and animal genes into the genetically, genetic structure of the corn and the soybeans, particularly corn, it weakens the crop because it's not robust. It only, it's limited to that certain uh, set of choices. It's, it's monoculture. It becomes a weaker crop. When What the Indian farmers did after they harvested the corn is they turned their cows loose in the field. And the cows have always been happy to eat the silage, the leftover stalks, the grass, the corn husks that were there. That was how they kept their cows alive. Well, the package that they sold the Indian farmers was roundup-ready seed, blast it all with roundup, kill all the other plants. The cows came in, ate the roundup-blasted silage, and died. Then what happened? The very same thing, the very thing that Tam mentioned, Roundup is a foreign entity, right? The soil attacked it and the corn didn't grow after one or two generations. Further, this is the one that just breaks your heart. In order to maximize profits, they put a time ticker in the genetic seeds so that it became an annual, not a perennial. It was always the case in the past that the Indian farmers would grow corn, eat some of it, and save some for seed for next year. These seeds didn't reproduce. They were designed to be one year only, so they had to start fresh and buy new seed every year. The, far, the cows died, breaking their 6,000-year-old structure. Then the seeds needed to be rebought. They, the seeds did not reproduce. They couldn't buy the new seeds, and the farmers are committing suicide. 250,000 Indian farmers last year committed suicide in one corner of India, there is this huge new outbreak of farmer suicides in India because it's an honor and shame culture, and if you cannot support your family, you as the farmer are shamed. Where do you go? You can't eat, your cows are dead. you can't feed your kids. They commit suicide, and the the, the widows and children of the farmers who commit suicide, often commit suicide because they, there's nowhere to go. There's no safety net in India because of Monsanto's greed entirely and because of the brainwashing they did to the Indian government, that this is the answer to, to the problem, to, to starvation. Right, Connie? Um, how did that effect happen so fast in India and not in America yet? How, say again, how did that effect happen? They sold special seeds to India that wouldn't reproduce, right? And America does not have sub- small subsistence farmers. America has agribusiness, giant conglomerates, right? One farmer owns miles of. So they have backup. Furthermore, the American government subsidizes agriculture. If your crop dies, The American government will pay you to get through the year. So it's a different system. India is subsistence farmers. The issue of farmer suicides in India, you look at, you think, that's evil. That's evil to have one company ruin the livelihood of hundreds of thousands of Indian farmers for their own profit.
2: How corrupt the media is, it's basically the owner said we are an advertising company, we are not a news company. And Monsanto took out this news story which said Happy Village.
0: Happy Village.
2: And a completely washed over positive story which appeared like a news article on one of the biggest publications and in very, very small fine print, it said say yeah, yeah. paid for by Monsanto.
0: Paid for by Monsanto. Okay. Uh we <laughs> Remember the Buddha Dharma. Let's see. Where were we? Back in the that's, I've heard of that before. We Xing.
3: Very inside and can be destroyed forests and destroyed everything. So it's not really predictable. And also, economically, it's no work because it's really seen that it doesn't make uh, in the long run only make a uh, rich company that sells that. But other people are just
0: uh, exactly put yeah in the Yeah. Let me I have to I have to repeat what you say so I have to remember everything. So okay, what Master Dashing said was that there are there have been other places where uh, Monsanto products were given to farm animals. The animals got sick. The uh, the local veterinarians and the farm agents and the, the good guys saw what was happening, figured out what was different, pulled the GMO feed out of the cattle's and pigs and, and uh, uh, chickens feed line fed them non-GMO the animals immediately responded and came back and got healthy they put the, the GMO feed back in their feed line they got sick again pulled it out they got better so this is you know you could say anecdotal meaning UC Davis hasn't paid for a double blind peer reviewed test the way you do it you know but come on we're talking about a generation. The other thing the Master Dashing said was that the stuff gets in the body because it's in it's genetically coded into the product. What they discovered is it links with our body's genetics and it doesn't go away. It's not a case of just you know changing the food once it gets in the gut. So it's it's different in humans. And the the beneficiaries, the, the, this video that, that got me so... Uh, that determined me to talk about it tonight, which have, I tell you this is something I haven't done before. The, the notion that it's for the benefit of a very, very few people, a board of directors, essentially stockholders in one company, that they're doing this. And there is no guarantee that, it's, that it would cost more to go back to the old non genetically modified nature modified for thousands and thousands of years methods it's just people they say in chinese tongming fanbei outsmarting ourselves getting too smart for our own well being all right so that's the let's bring it back my initial takeoff point was to say there is now on the ballot something called Proposition 37 which is modest in its scope. It just says, hey, you use these products? Tell us. That's all. Put on the food labels what's in it. Would that be called consumer protection? Wouldn't you think? Right? That's all. If... The uh, Prop 37 is a citizen's initiative. It's just put out by concerned people who say, I want to know what I'm feeding my children, my mom, my kids, my cows, myself. I want to know what it is. If you put poison in it, tell me. You must. We want that to be the law. It can't be the case that you slip that in there and don't let me know. Okay, that's the deal. Cynthia? Cynthia? vote against it
3: yeah if, if you read the fine print on the bottom the first one comes up is that Monsanto yeah what did so, Ma- so what happened to the other side I the other side doesn't have much
0: money. Have any money so Monsanto is pouring millions of dollars to get this because if they can stop it in California other states won't bring it up if California wins other states will certainly follow suit then pretty soon nationwide they won't be able to sell their poison
4: but the
3: government's not, I mean, we have Republican, we have Democrat government.
0: Both are not doing it. Unfortunately, the, the FDA head is appointed by the president. It's the Democrats and the Republicans. In this case, it's Citizens Initiative. You're, we're on our own. Marion. organic? Organic is non-GMO so correct it won't have to be right right Okay. okay so you want to explain terry Right. And a lot of the organic grants that we all buy are on Right. So the market always responds. And that's the only way to control is through you vote with your pocketbook, you vote with your credit card by not buying poison stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, I learned this in LA this last weekend, that there are uh, collaborative, there are cooperative organizations now that have a label called non GMO. And if you go online, it's non—it's I think it's called non-GMO. dot What is it? Non-GMO. dot org. I'm not sure. Uh, check that. But if you Google in, and they have a list of brands, and they're now, you know, 50 brands of crackers and breads and spaghetti and drinks that are specifically non-GMO. Organic now means non-GMO. If Prop 37 fails, which you know, we don't know, uh, then organic can still have GMO stuff in it. They don't have to tell you. So that will be taken away as a safeguard. So it's a really critical moment. And that's why I gave, you know, 40 minutes of our precious sutra time to talk about it because there's, we're, you know, people who know people who know people. And if you can tell your colleagues family members, classmates, buddies, grandparents, grandkids, to vote yes on 37, there's a chance. Um, in Mendocino County, a coalition of good-hearted folks decided they wanted to keep Monsanto out of Mendocino County and won. Ron Epstein was a key player in that coalition and just people who said, you know, Mendocino right now doesn't have GMO subsidies and, you know, and they made it. It was a county ordinance. Terry, do you know the details of that? How did it work? they lost. Said, no. Yeah. It was a countywide ballot in Mendocino. This was what 4 4 years ago. And longer. They uh, the citizens said we don't want GMO, we don't want genetically modified plants to grow in this county. They're not there now. And so they got a bill to say we will not accept them. They it must it must pass the test. And Monsanto, you know, sent Millions of dollars worth of flyers and advertisements and TV ads into the county to lie to you, to make you think it's fine, no problem. And they lost. The citizens won. Alan. If you turn your mouth that way, more people will hear it. it
1: So,
4: in the beginning, it was very difficult. We didn't get uh, a lot of attention and volunteers not enough, so they just kind of went away. Basically, post that in the library, some public places. So, just about the time, the government was going to quit, and then suddenly there was a small group. Support that, yeah. support a small group and against <laughs> this big cooperation to to set your foot into a small property right here. So that was the story.
0: Nobody likes a bully. Yeah. But why the
3: story was
0: not publicized? I mean, it's it's uh yeah, good question. So did, did people hear Alan's story? He he read about it and it was Ron Epstein uh who started it and nothing happened, he was ready to quit. When a coalition of friends from of, of interested people, Mendocino said, Hey, this is very interesting, and Monsanto found out and landed on them with all four feet and and put lots of money into defeating, sued them, and then it came to people's attention, why is Monsanto beating up on this little bunch of neighbors, you know? Well, it turns out that Monsanto is very afraid of the truth. They can't hear it. That's when the ground swelled, the grassroots uprising. So uh, so they passed. And so Cynthia's question is, why didn't we hear about this? Well, it's not in the economic interest of newspapers to publish good news stories. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't play the front page, you know. And it, it locally it did. If you read the Santa Rosa Press Democrat or the Ukiah Daily Journal, and I'm sure you do probably every issue, right? Never miss the Ukiah Daily Journal. <laughs> Santa Rosa Press Democrat has shrunk its size. It's, it's a mini paper now. It's a Times are so hard for newspapers. Tashi.
3: Right. So, it's very, it's no outside of the teaching and it's a very, one of the well, uh, well, uh, to work it to talk about this mm-hmm. and do we all let people uh, wake up. Mm-hmm. Have the opportunity to hear this because yeah. uh, they can wake up if they hear this is only a digital.
0: Oh. Okay. I appreciate that. Master Dashing says he thinks this is in line with the Sutra and it's because of those ideas that I decided to talk about it tonight. Number one is, here's our Bodhisattva who says, I want people to wake up. Why? Because I'm connected to them and they're hurting. Right? That's it. He says, I, when they hurt, I hurt. And I want them to wake up and the only way I've figured out they'll wake up is if they hear the truth. And even when they hear the truth, that things are kū kong, kū kong, wu wo wu impermanent, transient, moving on, no intrinsic self in them, all made of components, and ultimately don't satisfy. That's the nature of things. People don't know that. I want to wake them up. The Buddha Dharma is the way to do it. He said, well, what is the Buddha Dharma? It's truth from the Buddha's eyes. It's truth that goes deeper than the truth that most of us see when we bounce off the surface. I love it, I hate it. The Buddha says, well, that's the problem there. We attach to things we love and we were afraid of the things we hate. So I thought, right, the truth. Right now, Prop 37 is a question of truth versus falsehood. It's a question of selfishness versus unselfishness. It's a question of greed versus generosity of spirit. And it goes deeper because they're messing with the the deepest level of Construction. The genes, genetic messing doesn't get unmessed. You know, once you change things down there, you're tampering with something that has taken tens of thousands of, hundreds of thousands of years to slowly respond. Evolution. Well, you change it in a generation. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, and. Furthermore, I mean, vegetarians, the genetically modified organisms, have non-plant entities inserted in. They put pig genes into tomatoes. They put spider genes into goats for goat's milk. Don't ask me why, to make a stronger kind of thread. They put uh, cow genes into pigs. These are all documented forms of genetically modified organisms. And as a vegetarian, I would like to eat food that doesn't have animals in it, right? Thank you very much. Don't mess with my wheat and corn and soybeans. So you look at your tofu and it goes, meh, right? (laughs) Mom, my tomato is looking back at me. (laughs) Eat your tomatoes, dear. So that's why I decided to bring it up. And the question is, the Bodhisattva says, what will help him wake up? Truth. Where do you get it? Vote for Proposition 37. <laughs> and we'll be one step closer to the truth. And if we doesn't pass, the darkness closes in deeper. It'll be harder next time.
4: right now, why do many people buy organic fruit and vegetable. See, at work, we have only a couple hundred, you know, and my friend, they, and nobody knows me about GMO, you know. Nobody knows. Then I said I bought it organic, is too expensive. Okay? Too expensive. And people, they don't care about you know, they cheap wine, see. That,
0: that's a problem. I know. That's why right now, most, only us,
4: we know that's why that we went to Plant easy, you know, to buy from Canada. They always put it on the label, no GMO. No GMO. But only plant easy. They they come from Canada. Not, not the same way. Lucky every store they always have a GMO on there. So, see, yeah. Proper.
0: Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, America. That's the other thing. Twenty-seven other countries have said, "You do not introduce your." poisonous stuff to us we will not take it the government who has no interest in monsanto tells the truth and protects their citizens only the u.s says yeah we can lie to them but if you protest we'll take it out so we can sell you what you'll buy that's so infuriating right they won't sell wholesome food to the u.s but they'll sell it to other countries if they protest Outrageous. So, thank you for going on this little journey with me tonight on truth and advertising, right? It's part of Buddha Dharma, waking up. And if you don't vote for yourself, vote for your grandchildren. Wouldn't it be horrible to wake up one day and discover that all the corn is gone? Because something attacked it and it didn't resist? And there wasn't. What's that? We could just switch to to be continued all right <sighs> okay dedication to merit let's uh, it's there on your chanting sheet it's an opportunity to send out good wishes to To our bigger family, that people all wake up.
2: To vote yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To wake
0: up. What did I say? (laughs) To vote yes. To vote yes. yes. Say it louder. Hallelujah. Can I get a yes on 37? Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise, Monsanto.